Fields Bowie Versus Tillian Is this year when I'm glowy Am I killing? I hope it's not a blowy Or a villain It's time for Bowie versus Dylan. Hello and welcome once again to Bowie versus Dylan. I'm Charlie and I like Bowie. I'm Jake and I love Dylan. And today, before we get started, once again, I want you to, you know, please subscribe, like, do all that kind of stuff, listen yeah. to it wherever you want to listen to us. Sure. Um, check out our website at www.thewayversusdillard.com. Do that. For, you know, some extra zesty little nuggets okay. every now and again. Uh, you can check out us on YouTube as well with some unboxing videos. Ooh. Some of those things we jumped into. I know. I know. Ooh. I know. Hey, today is our 30th episode. Wow. And as is our once on uh, somewhat vaguely anniversary episodes, we shake things up a little bit and go against the standard formula of just looking at a year. And yeah. number 30 is no different. Today we're getting uh, we're getting down and dirty with some juicy, salacious Ooh. rivalries. <laughs> you know it. The rivalries, the feuds, the frenemies. So the, many frenemies. The pettiness. So many frenemies. The utter pettiness. The pettiness, so much pettiness. But yeah, I, I want to get this, you know, pretty juicy and salacious, Jake. Yeah. Can you do that for me? I'm excited. Well, you know what? I'm made out of salacity. I think that's a word. <laughs> you have, well, maybe. Yeah, it is now. Yeah, I mean, if they can get a rivalry one-tenth as good as yours and mine, uh, I mean. Oh, man. Our rivalry. It's going to make it for entertainment here today. Our, our rivalry is, it just defines the generations. I want to say. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know. So we're going to take a look at our top ten rivals, feuds, frenemies for each of our gentlemen mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in uh, descending order. As, yeah, well, I mean, we're, we're, we're counting down to number one. Absolutely, as usual. And uh, I'm going to throw things over to Jake so we can get started on this bad boy. All right. Take it, Jake. Let's get salacious. First of all, yeah. guys, I just want to, <laughs> I want to congratulate let's you. Let's get salacious. That didn't work. <laughs> I was hoping I could make it into Let's get physical. It's Let's get salacious. Let's get salacious. So uh, first of all, I want to congratulate you on 30 years of podcasting, Chaz. I think that's amazing. <laughs> finally. I'm a finally, we made it for 30 years. You know, you were... When you were eight and I was six and man. we started up this podcast. Who knew? Those were the days. An episode per year and here we are, 30 years later. <laughs> it's our 30th anniversary. <laughs> it's amazing. another Diamond Diamond Jubilee, Jake. <laughs> Yet another Every one. Every episode is another Diamond Jubilee. Uh, we, really, we really should look up. There's there's a big list about like wedding anniversaries and what you should give on each year. I'm sure the 30th oh, yeah, is, is yeah. a big one, well, but I, I didn't do that research. I'm going to look that up instead of listening to you while you talk about your first one. Sounds great. Won't take long. Coming in at number 10, Chaz, of Bob Dylan's greatest and or most salacious rivalries is it's one... It's the Pearl anniversary. I already got it. It's per, wow! You're really fast at that uh, <laughs> at that Google machine you 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 the use. Google machine. Um, I'm gonna start oh, wait, with one. Someone else is suggesting it's emerald. I don't know. Go. Wow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm That's wildly, right. I'm not gonna interrupt you this time, right? I'm just now now I'm picturing a um a a clam that opens its its jaws and there's an emerald pearl inside. And that, oh. that, friends, is the image <laughs> of our thirtieth episode. Our thirtieth episode. <laughs> um, so we're going to start with one that's not very salacious at all. In fact, there's no salacity involved whatsoever. <clears throat> Bob Dylan's number ten rival is a man by the name of Leonard Cohen. Leonard 
Cohen. Leonard Cohen. Now, the only reason the only reason that this is a rivalry is because it's kind of like a critical rivalry amongst yeah, okay. amongst critics and fans. They they never had beef together, I, as far as I know. Uh, they never they never had any pettiness or squabbling like some of the others that are coming up on this list. But Leonard Cohen, um, amongst himself and maybe you know one to two other American songwriters, are um, you have a contingent of fans that are like, oh no, it's Bob Dylan's not the greatest American songwriter. It's Leonard mm. Cohen. It's Leonard Cohen. Okay. Uh, a lot of a lot of threads, a lot of uh, message threads. Well, they both they both own acoustic guitars and thesauruses, so yes. I could see that. And they both they both write witty off center lyrics. Yeah. Um, and they both sing about them, which makes them songwriters and singers. Uh, and so is Paul Simon gonna make this list too? Oh yeah, oh, big time. There's so much pettiness there. You 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 just oh there's pettiness there oh, too. There's, okay, because I mean like, everything you're saying right now, like Paul Simon just falls into that also. Exactly. So why don't you just okay? Not, all right, all right. Stop well, ruining the podcast already. <laughs> uh, well, you can you name name any glam rocker and and that person's on this list. So yeah, there they are. They're all there. I forgot about Gary Glitter. Oh man. Well, all right. Gary Glitter's number eleven. Can we not, let's not stop the podcast for you to do more research. (laughs) Uh, So there's a lot of message threads out there when Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize for literature. Oh, it should have been Leonard Cohen. Should have been Leonard Cohen. He's the better songwriter, better pure songwriter, better words, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And so that's the rivalry. It's just, it's kind of a, it's kind of a critical one. But I wanted to, I wanted to share something that Leonard Cohen said about Bob Dylan. And um, this is just picture Leonard Cohen um, saying this. I picture him. It's the most Leonard Cohen-y thing that Leonard Cohen has ever said, I think, about another songwriter. Here it is. Quote, At a certain point, when the Jews were first commanded to raise an altar, the commandment was on unhewn stone. Apparently, the God that wanted that particular altar didn't want slick, didn't want smooth. He wanted an unhewn stone placed on another unhewn stone. Maybe you then go looking for stones that fit. Now, I think that Dylan has lines, hundreds of great lines, that have the feel of unhewn stone. But they really fit in there. But they're not smoothed out. It's inspired, but not polished. That kind of genius can manifest all the forms and all the styles. End quote. Leonard Cohen. Leonard Cohen, everybody. Incredibly Leonard Cohen. Wow. Wow, he said it in a super deep voice. I thought at one point voice. he was going to describe himself as the unhewn stone on top of Bob Dylan's unhewn stone. Oh, wow. I didn't even think of that. that. But now that I said that out loud, it kind of sounds like they're, you know, doing it. No, they're not. Let's, no, let's, I know. Let's move on. How about you do your number 10? <laughs> <laughs> all right, number 11, who I'm not going to talk about at all, is Gary Glitter. Great. Great. I forgot about it. Thanks for right that. <laughs> I was going to put him on the list, and I forgot about it. Oh, so, he would have been yeah. number one. Darn it. Number 10, instead, is... Uh, a nobody by the name of George Underwood. Oh, I don't know who that and is. And you probably don't know who George Underwood is because he is not well known. Why don't you tell but us? But he was a school friend of David Bowie. Ooh. And actually remained lifelong friends. They were still friends at Bowie's death. Uh, they were in a bunch of bands together, a bunch of Bowie's early bands. And actually, like, George Underwood, everyone thought he was going to be the one that was going to be famous. Like, oh. he was doing more than Bowie. And Bowie ended up, like, playing saxophone in a couple of his bands early on where he was, you know, lead singer and stuff. Um, as he got a little older, Underwood decided to stop pursuing music and became a commercial artist instead. Great. He did the uh, the artwork for, most notably for Bowie, he did the, uh, the artwork for both Hunky Dory and Ziggy Stardust. Oh. And uh, I believe he did the back cover for Space Oddity also, if I'm remembering correctly. You're right. I know that. Okay. 
but most notably, and this this is pretty salacious, Jake. This is juicy Ooh, right here. Juicy. So when they were in high school, or you know, I mean, teenagers. I don't want to say they're about fifteen, sixteen, right around there. Prep school. They got in a big fight over a girl, which sounds like it was totally Bowie's fault too. Well, clearly. And uh, Underwood took a swing at him, punched Bowie in the face. Oh right. And uh, broke right. his eye. Yes. So Bowie's famous for his weird eye, and most people think that it's, you know, that he has different color, two different color eyes, but he doesn't. He has the same, same color eye. But what happened is his left eye, sometimes referred to stupidly as his alien eye, um, <laughs> had, was permanently dilated. It was permanently dilated Oof. open, which is actually why he wore an eye patch at times. Because, yeah. you know, when but, your eye is permanently dilated all the time. But, it, also, you know, but also to be weird. a lot of light. And uh, that happened because of this fight in which George Underwood punched him in the face, and it's kind of a freak-like thing that he punched him. This, this damage was caused to his eye, permanent yeah. damage caused to his eye for the rest of his life. They uh, they got over it pretty quickly. Okay. And uh, yeah, ended up being friends for the rest of their lives. Okay. Wow. So that's that's a little salacious, but not. But th- I, that, I think that's pretty juicy. Yeah, that's ju- it's juicy. It's juicy, but maybe juicy. not. Maybe not salacious. Not okay. salacious. Salacious. I take back. It's juicy though. Okay. Hey, great juicy anecdote. Great juicy, right. great juicy number take it, ten. Take it to number nine. All right, I'm going to take it. Go, go to number nine. I'm going to take it to number nine with another heavy hitter. Um, this is a, this is an Irish fella by the name of Van Morrison, Bob Dylan. Van Morrison, number nine rival. Now this is a uh, this this prototype is kind of the quote learn from the master prototype. Okay. Oh uh, yeah, which, yeah, yeah. Okay. Which Dylan ha- Dylan has a few of these because he was basically first, you know, in in many yeah. in many respects. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't sure with Van Morrison which one was the master here. I oh yeah, no, no. Current quite started. It was in the sixties, is all I know. As you'll find out, uh, Bob Dylan is the master in many of these relationships. The the <laughs> the prototypical okay. master. Um, and so Van Morrison, of course, came up later um, than Bob Dylan, and he struggled for for several years. Maybe maybe not unlike Bowie. Yeah, um, I wasn't going to bring it up because I wasn't going to interrupt you to talk about Bowie at this juncture, but I'm glad you did it for me. That well, was really convenient. I don't want you to talk about it. I just want you to hear what I said and stop, <laughs> I, stop I did. commenting I did. on it. Okay, good. That's true. Great. Um, so Van Morrison had a huge hit with his uh, with his band, Them. Uh, that's Gloria, G-L-O-R-A-I. Wait, Glo- uh, Gloria. We can't spell this morning. And uh, he moved on to a solo who's this, career. Who's this we here? Uh, I can't. I can't spell this morning. Okay, good, good. Yeah. Uh, he went on to uh, write Brown Eyed Girl, which was a huge hit. And then yeah. he immediately moved to Boston and released what would end up being his most classic album, which is Astral Weeks. But it was a huge uh-huh. dud and totally misunderstood at the time of its release. <clears throat> Just like us. So he wondered... <laughs> That's right, Chaz. Except for the dud part, we're doing all right. You know, you'd think after 30 years, we'd have... After 30 years. We'd have more than 30 fans, but that's just not... We would at least have monogrammed limousines. At least. Yeah, well, I have one. Bob Bob Dylan sent me one. Oh. I should have told you that. I'm sorry. Oh. Uh, Now you're just rubbing in the fact that Bowie is dead and can't send me a monogrammed limousine. So Van, Van Morrison... Uh, after that, after that failure, which turned out to be not a failure, but at the time was certainly right. a failure, um, he put his tail between his legs and he slinked off to Woodstock, New York, where, if you'll recall, <laughs> um, many, many, many artist types and famous singers lived, including Bob Dylan. Right. And Van Morrison's idea was that he would go and sort of learn from the master. And um, this is an anecdote that was in one of Bob Dylan's biographies. Um, Van used to take his wife. His wife at the time was named Janet Planet. That's true. <laughs> okay. 
Okay. Yeah. They had a torrid uh, love and subsequent marriage that ended several years later. Um, but uh, Van and Janet Planet would go down to the mouth of Bob Dylan's driveway where there was a gate of some sort, and he would just kind of wait there, hoping to see Bob Dylan come down the driveway and, I don't know, like accost him for songwriting tips or, you know, just sort of like bask in his in his glory or something like that. Not really sure. Um, but it, lead, it, it led me to, to think of this funny little scene where, like, this short, brusque uh, Irishman is, like, kicking, uh-huh. kicking stones at the end of Bob Dylan's driveway, like... Uh, <laughs> You know, like, oh, jeez, Janet. In my imagination, she's got a stick in his hand and just rubbing along the fence. Yeah, you know, exactly, exactly. It's, oh, Janet. Kind of picketing. I wish, I wish Bob would come down the driveway, Janet Planet. Oh, jeez. Oh, jeez, oh, Bob. Well, where, where do you think he is? Where do you think oh, he yeah. is? What's he doing? Um, Van, oh. Van would, would... I don't think you... I knew Van Morrison was Irish. Oh, he's he's very Irish. Oh, I mean... He's very Irish. He, he has a reputation for being um, quite the jerk throughout his throughout his career and or doing so, things. So does Bob Dylan. Exactly. Okay. So, you know, maybe he did learn something from the master about like not caring what other people think. So do most of these people, people on my list. I'm not honest. Yeah. And, uh, so he went on to obviously great success and he became certainly his own, his own master. Um, uh-huh. he doesn't really resemble Bob Dylan much at all in his no. career. Um, but Woodstock did provide him with two classic albums that made him famous. Uh, Moon Dance and Tupelo Honey were written kind of in a country, a country style or something like that. All right. Um, Van and Bob would duet together on like a, a hilltop in Greece, like overlooking the Parthenon sure. in, in, 19, As one does. in 1989. And uh, my last thing about Van is that this reminded me of being in college and being on all those awful like Napster type things. And yeah. um, you would type in like uh, Bob Dylan or you would type in Van Morrison and there would be, you know, Bob Dylan with Van Morrison, but it would always be like... Um, it was would, it actually a weird mashup? E- either that or it wouldn't be them at all. It was someone trying to trick you into tripping. <laughs> like someone completely... It was like, actually David Bowie. It, 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 and it might have had a virus inside <laughs> of it or something. You know, like uh, I clicked on one that was Bob Dylan and Radiohead one time and... And why? Why would that have been? But for some uh-huh. reason, for some reason, you know, you're like, ooh, those are two of my favorites. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, but anyway, the Van Morrison. I'm mocking 19 year old Jake in my brain right now. Oh man. Damn. We're going 19. Thought that was real. Oh. And then his computer We're crashed cool. and got set on fire by a bad virus. Oh. <laughs> uh, okay, that's Van Morrison. Go on. All right. No, you're not. I'm talking very fast. I'm talking super fast. All right, next up for me is Brian Ferry. Oh, I know him. Brian Ferry, famously the lead singer of Roxy Music. Yep. Uh, Again, this is like the start of Bowie versus every other glam rocker. Yep. Both before and after their glam rockers. And this whole thing, like, there's so many big bands came up in just like such a short amount of times. You know, you think of Roxy Music as getting pretty big. They're just barely younger than Bowie. I mean, yeah. For when for when Bowie actually broke out, you know, like their first album was in seventy one or seventy two. I think it's seventy two. Yeah, and it's like right after Bowie. Um, so Roxy Music was actually an early opening band for the Ziggy shows. Mm. Um, they were pretty outrageous. You know, this is when Brian Eno was still in Roxy Music. Okay, and he was like maybe the most outrageous one, which is not what you think of with Brian Eno today. Uh, this was only like a mini feud because there was Brian Eno or Brian Ferry kind of thought a lot of himself. Yeah. And there was a legitimate gigantic feud between Brian Ferry and Brian Eno. Oh. Yeah, they're both Bryans. That never two, occurred to me until right second, which doesn't make sense. Two Bryans. But Ferry and Eno have had, I, they still have, as far as I can tell, a major feud. 
um, just this year, Roxy Music was inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and they reunited to play, and Eno didn't come at all. <laughs> didn't show up. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Eno was only there for their first two albums, and then he left, and, you know, and, like, his first solo album featured every member of the brand, band except for Brian, Brian Ferry. So, uh, take that for Anyway, Ferry and Bowie's feud was a lesser thing, but most notably... Uh, Bowie released his 1973 Pinups album, which is a covers album. Yep. It came out two weeks after Brian Ferry's cover album, this, These Foolish oh Things. Oh my goodness. You and, uh, glam no rockers. I care about Brian Ferry's album, and Bowie's Pinups album did quite well and had a hit and everything. Mm. And so Brian Ferry, apparently, I couldn't find any of the quotes, but apparently said some, uh, some choice sentiments in, in, the, uh, in the news about Bowie and his cover album doing better than Brian Ferry's cover, though. Oh, choice. Salacious. They made it up or something. I don't. I just don't think Bowie really cared about Brian Ferry. Yeah, this happens sometimes. That's the rub. Some of these people, like you talked about, like this, you know, master type situation. And this, I mean, they're they're too close to being contemporaries for this to be a true master situation. Right. But but I think Brian, you know, or Brian Ferry was kind of like nipping at Bowie's heels just a little bit. And, yeah, they were know, big. They were they were sensation a little they, bit. Yeah. Oh yeah, Roxy Music was big. Um, but they never quite got out of his shadow exactly. They ended up going more of their own direction later on. Okay. And of course, Bowie worked with Eno quite extensively in the late seventies, so that came back around that way too. All right. So there you are. Number, wow. That was number nine. That was a well. This was number eight. That was a well-crafted response, Chaz. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Is there going to be a T Rex rival later in this podcast? Only time will tell, Jake. Okay. Only time will Only tell. Only time will tell. Okay, so number eight for Bob Dylan's greatest rivals is Donovan. Remember Donovan? Donovan. Donovan. Now, yeah, this... we got some heavy-hitting uh, artists here. I mean, yeah. Sorry, yeah I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, coming at, I'm coming up here. I'm just I saying. I mean, Donovan is uh, is far less down the pole than Leonard Cohen. Well, sure. And Van well, Morrison. Yes. But he was he was big. He, he ended up he very... Big. He ended up very famous and successful. I guess he's Scottish, which he doesn't have an accent or huh. anything. Uh, he I had think uh, being like yeah, really like almost country American boy, you know. Yeah, like exactly. All American well, type. well, that's what he modeled after. This was a learn. From, okay. This was a learn from the master kind of a thing too. Yeah. Or not even a learn from the master, but more of a um, sound like the master. Yeah. Kind of a thing. So uh, his big hit later was Mellow Yellow. That was a number one. Oh, yeah. That was a number one smash hit. They call me Mellow Yellow. Boom, 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 boom. They call me Mellow Yellow. Yeah. 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 Yep, that's the one. Um, so uh, this this rivalry lasts, uh, I want to say this rivalry lasts about ten minutes. But it's such it's such <laughs> but a what ten minutes it was. It, so it really was. It was so caught. Juicy. It was caught on camera by P. A. Uh, D. A. Pennebaker in the film "Don't Look Back." Um, okay. And actually, if you go to Google, it's supposed to be, supposed to be great, right? It's wonderful. It's uh, yeah. One yeah, of the no, best, okay, yeah, one of the best rock documentaries ever. Around, it's only okay. So um, you can see this if you type in Bob Dylan rivalries. This the video of this pretty much comes up. Um, Donovan <laughs> is visiting. Bob Dylan, when he was in England in 1965, uh-huh. and he visits him in his hotel room, and Dylan's got this kind of merry, you know, band of jokesters around him. <laughs> sure, Everyone's wearing sure. sunglasses and smoking unfiltered cigarettes and being mean to everyone that comes in the door. They're just, they're so hip, <laughs> you know somehow, what I mean? But somehow merry anyway. They're very merry, very cynical, a kind of cynical merriness, I want to say. Uh-huh. Um, and so Donovan comes in, and he he is the... He's the UK version of Bob Dylan. That's how he's being treated in the press. He's getting, okay. he's getting right. a lot of pub for being like, 
the UK's answer to Bob Dylan. And so he comes okay. in all full of himself. I thought, I thought Dylan was huge in the UK. He was. Dylan already the UK's Dylan? Yeah, but I mean, this guy was from the UK, so... Yeah, no, but still. Yeah, Dylan was the world's Dylan, but... Uh, <laughs> this guy was supposed to be, like, the new Dylan he or does. something, even though Dylan had been... Everett, Everett's supposed to be the new Dylan. Right. Bowie so was the new Dylan. Donovan was one of the notable first examples from, he's the, one of the, most from notable across the pond. Dylan's. Okay, so he comes in all full of himself, and he's going to debut a new song in front of the master, and he sings this, like, kind of lovely folk ditty about how he's singing this song for this girl and she's so pretty and stuff like that. And yeah. everyone's, everyone's like barely masking their contentment for, for Donovan. Um, Bob Dylan's sort of being hip and witty and making fun of him, but, but not really. And then Dylan's like, give me that guitar. And he plays It's All Over Now, Baby Blue. And then he debuts Love Minus Zero, No Limit, which are two of his most, you know, those were, those were revolutionary songs at the time. And clearly uh-huh. like, outstripped this this kind of folk diddiness it was like more you know was the songs were about different things or about the world or about this and that um it went beyond protest and all that kind of stuff um and donovan i mean you might have to watch this video to get he just the the camera just shows him looking devastated (laughs) he's and i just i want he's he looks crestfallen he looks devastated and he looks like he's going to cry and put out his cigarette with his tears of dismal shame. <laughs> I mean, oh, Dylan I mean, just... I feel bad for him, but also it's fun. Dylan artistically murders him in, like, five minutes. And you think... Uh-huh. It's kind of amazing that he made it out of that, because maybe he went and took that, that experience and was like, boy, i got to get a lot better. I'm, I'm not even... I'm not <laughs> even close. All right, so that's it. That was number eight. Donovan, a, Donovan. Short, a short tale. All right. Number eight for me is coming with Freddie Mercury. Oh, that's a big uh-huh. one. Hey, old. The, uh, the famous singer of Queen. So this is another, like, five-minute long, uh, man, it's not five, this is more like a day or two long feud, a as far as I can feud? tell. Okay. But there's always, Bowie's got a lot of these. Again, like, any of these, uh, what am I trying to say? Androgynous, you know, gay or maybe gay type rock singers, British rock singers from from who existed in the 70s. Basically, Bowie's got some kind of minor rivalry with all of them, at least. Okay. <laughs> and clearly Freddie Mercury right there again. And, and Brian Ferry, for that matter. And, you know, like, all these guys are like, this whole list is made up of, you know, are they or aren't they types. Yeah, of course. Um, so most notably, that I mean, Queen and Bowie work together, and they're the crux of their, the heart of their rivalry is actually entirely limited to the, the sessions that resulted in the song Under Pressure. Yeah. There was, seemed to be, like, some, you know, kind of slight animosity about them. They were also friends, though, because always friends with everybody, seemingly. Um, but they did Under Pressure. So Under Pressure came about kind of by accident. Um, Queen was in the studio recording their album, what would be 1982's, 81 or 82's Hot Space album. Um, Bowie was there recording vocals for his collaboration with Giorgio Moroder called Cat People, Putting Out Fire. Yeah. Which later appeared in a, in a re-recorded form on the album Let's Dance, but was originally just a non-album single. And uh, so they just kind of like ran into each other in the studio. And they're like, hey, you know, let's jam, guys. They're like, oi. So they did. And uh, apparently a couple different songs, like not completed songs, came out of the sessions too. Apparently there was the original version of 
of a Queen song, Cool Cat, which is on the Hot Space album. Originally, Bowie did backing vocals for it. Okay. But just a few days before the album was set to be released, Bowie, like, yanked out his approval and told them to take it off the album. Why? And so, as far as I know, it's never officially been released. But I don't know it for sure. So, I don't, he just didn't want to anymore. Okay. Bowie does, he <laughs> did stuff like that. Sure. Sometimes. Sure. Bowie. Um, but of course, most notably, they recorded Under Pressure, one of the best songs from either one of them. For, certainly. And apparently, they, uh, Freddie Mercury and Bowie just kind of fought the entire time. <laughs> like, the entire time they were recording this song. Uh-huh. And, like, no one could really remember who came up with the bass line. Like, somebody said it was, you know, the bass player of Queen. But then he says it was Bowie. But Bowie didn't say anything about it. And someone else was like, no, it wasn't Bowie. Who knows? Nobody the knows. famous, you know, boom, 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 boom. Which is a great bass line. I've heard that before. And uh, apparently Bowie really hated Freddie Mercury's vocals. Like, really thought it was dumb. And he was just, like, doing this thing all the time. Yeah, apparently Bowie did not think very highly of that. Uh, apparently, when they first recorded the songs, they recorded the vocals for it, uh, Bowie and, and Freddie Mercury both went into separate booths and recorded their own thing without knowing what the other person was doing. That's kind of incredible. Is how, is how they started it. And then they kind of put it together in places. Oh, right. So Bowie's now singing socially conscious lyrics about, you know, people on the streets. Ba-da-do-ba-bap is what Freddie Mercury's response is People on the streets. Ba-da-do-ba-bap. It's the terror of knowing what this world is about. Watching some good friends scream, let me out. There we go. That was good, Jess. It was real good. It's still going. It's still going. He's not stopping. No, well, that's what Bowie thought. That's exactly what Bowie thought. So, but it came out and ended up on Hot Spaces also. Um, Bowie hated his record label and didn't want to give them anything, so it went on. So he gave uh, he gave another so Queen, record label Queen his put it on their best album song, instead. basically. And Bowie just you know was in the school. So I mean, Bowie performed under pressure a lot. He was at the Freddie Mercury tribute concert in 1992. Very good. And he performed it with Annie Lennox. And yeah. Annie Lennox doing the Freddie Mercury part. Nice. And she's awesome in that. It's really oh, yeah. good. Bowie's awesome. Right, but she's Annie awesome. She kind of steals it in that. I'll admit it. And, uh, shoot, I know what I think to say about this, and I forgot it. So, we'll just leave it, and I'll interrupt you later on, as I do. Back to you, Jake! Alrighty, number seven. Well, first I want to say that I think that every podcast that we do together is kind of like the under pressure, uh, <laughs> where we're in separate... Under pressure's a metaphor for we're our in, podcast. We're in separate booths. You're and we're standing around saying, who knows why? <laughs> well, I'm getting just... down to business. Talking about the people really care about we're ign- David Bowie. We're ignoring each it's other exactly. and we're interrupting each other all at the same time somehow. I'm just gonna start scanning. Alright, Jake, we are already half an hour into this podcast. So my we need to get through sixteen more. My <laughs> my number twelve rival for Bob Dylan. <laughs> Actually, we're oh, we're all the you're, way. Spoiler alert: you're number one on the list. Just want you to know that. That's what I'm saying. This is the under pressure of podcasts. <laughs> Slightly less famous. My number. My number seven rival for Bob Dylan is, oh, I don't know, maybe you've heard of him, John Lennon. 
Wow! Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> Never uh, explained. Okay, so there was a band, they were semi-famous, they were called <laughs> The Beatles. And in The Beatles, there were four gentlemen. They were um, British, they were from Liverpool, and uh, one of them was named John Lennon. Now, in um, John Lennon and Bob Dylan influenced each other in a way. So um, there's a story about Bob Dylan um, going going nuts for uh, when he heard on the radio "I Want to Hold Your Hand" by the Beatles. Yeah. He like ran around the car and he was like, "This is it! This is pop music!" or something like that. And um, the freewheeling Bob Dylan um, obsessed the Beatles so much that um, when they did "Rubber Soul," there was a lot of kind of country, folky kind of stuff on yeah. there that was influenced by by Bob Dylan. Um, the most famous example is the song "Norwegian Wood." Yeah. which John Lennon wrote, and it was clearly... Bing, 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 bing. Yeah, with the sitar. Bing, 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 bing. I once had a girl, all she knows I say, she, she once had, had me. So this was clearly indebted to Bob Dylan. John Lennon said that later, that it was his attempt at writing a Dylan-esque song. And uh, so then Bob Dylan on Blonde on Blonde wrote Fourth Time Around, which was a song... So how how would this go? It was influenced by John Lennon's song that was influenced by Bob Dylan in the first place. <laughs> yeah. So Fourth Time Around is one of my favorite Dylan songs, but it's clearly kind of like a parody of Norwegian Wood, while at the same time being being excellent. Um, let's see. Oh, Dylan introduced the Beatles to pot in August 1964. <laughs> that's that's uh, that's, that's thing or bad thing. I don't know. marijuana. Ever heard of it? <laughs> yeah, but not. So then it gets more interesting because it appeared that John Lennon sort of um, sort of worshipped Dylan in a way that Dylan did not worship him back at all. Like Dylan yeah. never wrote a song that was clearly indebted to John Lennon or the Beatles. He just he admired them and, and he and he liked their work and stuff. But Lennon was always trying to you know write in in the style of Bob Dylan. Uh-huh. Um, so why then does Bob Dylan write a tribute to John Lennon on two thousand? 11's, oh, excuse me, 2012's Tempest. The song is called Roll on John, and I don't think I, I don't think I said it when we did the episode with Tempest in it. Um, that sounds like 32 years after his death. 30, weird. 32 years after his death, and uh, I, I'm a little mystified by it as well, because it's a good song, but John Lennon doesn't necessarily, or excuse me, Bob Dylan doesn't necessarily write tributes to people. That's not really his thing. No. And I read on the online uh, magazine The Atlantic... And I thought this was really interesting. Um, they said it's because Dylan treats Lennon like another one of his mythic characters that he writes about. And he sorts of ruminates on John Lennon um, as a mythic archetype, kind of like you would write about John, uh, John Henry or Stagger Lee or something yeah. like that. He's turned him into like a folk figure, which I thought was pretty interesting. And that's all I have about John Lennon. All right. Back over to me for... Yeah. Do it. Whoa! Seems like this is more of like this is like a comparison to your Leonard Cohen one, because it's okay. more of like a perceived rather than actual personal rivalry. It was more of a perceived rivalry, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Oh, sure. Prince it does. was clearly the uh, the heir to the throne. Oh, after yeah. Bowie, after 1980, when Bowie stopped being super amazing and right. started you know, just being okay and then being bad after that, Prince comes up right then, like in the same way that Bowie owned the 70s. Yeah. Prince owns the 80s. Definitely you know, he does. They're both 
androgynous, sex-crazed, style-jumping, innovative, unstoppable, hit-making solo musicians. Whoa. That's what I wrote down. That's a, lot of, that's a lot of words you just said. That's a lot of words I just said. Um, All of and them so they, As far as I know, I don't know that they... It's kind of strange that they wouldn't have like worked together or something. I, like, I could see that more. And Bowie did tons of collaborations, but Prince really didn't, so maybe that's what it is. It just seems like it would have made sense, you know? Again, yeah. they're very similar in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, the, maybe the biggest rivalry was actually their death, because they died three months apart mm-hmm. from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are a lot of comparisons there, and they're both so gigantic, and both had such these big cults, like, after their deaths. And um, so, I, I mean, they're like, the end, for the end for them is kind of debatable. Like, Bowie's last album was definitely way better. Like Bowie's last album was amazing. Way it's something Prince's last album. I'm not a giant Heat Prince fan. I'll admit. Me neither. I like some of his stuff, but I'm not. You know. But I guess his. I guess Prince's last album was nothing to really, you know, care about. But then also Bowie knew he was dying, and right. Prince did not. No, he did not. So that you know could do stuff there. You know, but as a. But I also want to talk for a minute about their posthumous release campaigns. Okay. Let's because hear, having you know it. having started all this at about the same time, again Prince died only three months after Bowie. Um, the way that they're you know, archives now and their legacy is being handled as interesting. Prince is famous for having a gigantic vault of, of oh, unreleased yeah. stuff. Just tons and tons of stuff. It's legendary. It's legendary. And Bowie is famous for, like, not really, I mean, in the, not in the same way. Bowie is famous for his archives for having, like, collected his own stuff and having tons of stuff hidden. But not as much music, just, like, everything. Like, he has a very well-curated archive of all of of costumes and stuff and notes from, like, the late 60s. Like, he just kept everything. He was a hoarder, apparently. A lot of frock coats. But but it's just assumed there's a bunch of stuff, because Bowie is very careful with what was released from him. A lot of frock coats. And so now we're getting into this, you know, this loose campaign. And Prince's is, like, restrained and fascinating. Even Mm -hmm. though I don't even, like, care about Prince. Like, when there's a new Prince release announced... I, like, check it out, and I'm interested in, like, oh, that sounds like it'd be really good it's if classy. I like Prince more, which it's I don't. It's real classy. It's, like, really classy. Like, the first thing was just a big deluxe edition of Purple Rain, which, you know, is an undisputed classic. Yeah. And then they, like, released this secret, not-known album of just him on a piano and singing. Yeah, like, I heard, what, I heard one of those. Print. Like, this album's supposed to be really good. It is. And they're doing another deluxe edition of a different album, you know, 20 years after Purple Rain. And they're doing, like, uh, what's the, I just read about, uh, it was announced the same day as Bowie's next. Yeah, it's a demos. It's an early It's, it's a, de- a demos. It's demos of all these songs that ended up being hits that he wrote for other people, like, yeah. like Manic Monday by the, uh, the Bangles. Right. Right. <laughs> And uh, it's nothing compares to you. Do you and he wrote that one too? He did. Sinead O'Connor. Yes, he sure did. Yeah. And his version is great so as well. It's his original versions of these songs that then he gave to other people, mm-hmm. and his original versions have almost never been released. Like that sounds fascinating. Totally. Meanwhile, so this is classy and restrained. <laughs> Bowie, on the other hand, is unrelenting and expensive, and mostly just old live shows. Just dumping, <laughs> dumping. Not things. that it's been bad. What's coming out from Bowie isn't bad, but it's just. Especially this year, we've talked about the uh, the current Bowie release campaign is confusing. It is. They're uh, they're doing you know the fiftieth anniversary uh, copyright extension stuff because apparently that's how it works with recordings. If if you don't release something after fifty years, then it goes in the public domain. That's so a lot correct. of stuff gets released at fifty years old. Yeah. So there's uh, a whole bunch of demos from nineteen sixty nine by Bowie finding their way out here, which is fascinating. They're like they I would love to listen to these. But they're being released in the most exclusive and expensive and stupid way possible. Uh, the first two sets are entirely made up <laughs> of seven-inch singles, vinyl singles. Yep. So nine demos cost thirty-five dollars. Mm. It's less than a half an hour of music. Good price. 
Um, so that there's two of those, or there's one of those out. The next one's on its way, although by the time this podcast comes out, I think it'll be out. Uh, and then their next release they just announced is a one LP mm-hmm. of some demos from 69. It's a famous bootleg, and I have listened to it, and it's really quite good and interesting. Okay. But they're putting it in a box and putting in photographs in there, and they're somehow charging $70 <laughs> for it. <laughs> It's one LP. It's forty minutes worth of music. You poor sucker. It's seventy dollars. You poor sucker. And I love Bowie, and I want to buy this, but I'm not. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing it. Can I? Can I? I did, I did buy the first of the seven inch box sets, and I, and I just got so sick of, of flipping it over after every single song. Oh yeah, that's ridiculous. Every two. How did anyone ever it. do that? So it's generally assumed that all this will come out in, on CD and digital because they obviously want to make money, and if they want to make more money, this is what they will do. At the end of the year, sometime, it's just assumed this will come out, oh, and yeah. uh, I will wait for that. Hey, good and for you, man. that's that. Although, your unboxing video was was grand about that. Thanks. Thanks. Um, I also just want to brag and say that uh, it was recently announced that Dylan is releasing his, his thing this year. It was uh, on the same day as Bowie and Prince's. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was like, a big day. It was a like big what's day. what's next? Like, Paul Simon's coming along, and here come the Beatles. Hey. <laughs> Everyone, everyone jump on board. Anyway, it's the Rolling Thunder Review, First Leg, 1975. It's a 14-CD uh-huh. box set coinciding with the Martin Scorsese documentary on Netflix. Uh-huh. Um, I got that for 62 American dollars. It's going to arrive. And Jake, don't you realize you could almost get one LP of Bowie material well, that, rather than 14 CDs? Now, Let's think about value, Jake. Now, let, let me ask you, is that, <laughs> is that a scratchy demo? Because Oh, yeah. Oh, it is? Oh, yeah. Oh, well, we need to pause this so I can go buy that, please. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> uh, pre-orders available to your Amazon. <laughs> All right, my oh, last man. big thing, big rivalry between Bowie and Prince. Okay, is that is uh, I feel like it's a who wore it better about roughly shirts and frock coats. Oh man, oh that's that's got to be Prince. I'm sorry, it's got to be Prince. Let's yeah. be honest with ourselves, but. But Bowie, mm-hmm. in, he was more in the '90s. He was breaking out the, the f- roughly shirts and mm-hmm. Broncos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I'll admit, Prince wore it better. Yeah, he was a classy gentleman. I'll also mention I had mentioned Leonard Cohen in here also because Leonard Cohen died the same year. He lived you know, a few months after Prince. Yeah, and he had a big like dying, like awesome dying album, just like Bowie did. Not as yeah. good as Bowie's, but nope. All right, back to you, Jake. We're finally we're up to number six now. Well, here we go. Let's go for number <laughs> it's six. The longest episode ever. Uh, we're gonna be we're gonna be <sighs> half we're gonna be halfway through in about thirty minutes. Let's do this. All right. <laughs> we're just so. number one. I'm just, I'm just gonna say its name, his name, and we'll be done. <laughs> you can just no juicy slices details, even though it'll happen. You go. All you, right. you go let's, figure let's it out. Let's kick this, Jake. Let's go. We leave it up to the fans from now on. Uh, <laughs> so speaking of which, Bob Dylan's number six rivalry is his own fans, Chaz. His own fans. Good one. <laughs> 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 we talked about this a lot. This I show. know, I know, and so I won't. I won't belabor the point. But um, he courted he courted fame very aggressively in the early part of his career, and he got it. Didn't we all? He got fame in a way that probably you know only like three or four other people or groups, including David Bowie, probably like quite understand. Like he was world 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 famous and 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 that kind of thing and by that point he was like whoa everyone take a step back why don't you <laughs> get out of my face this <laughs> this this is too much for me i know i asked for this but i didn't quite ask for all of this um so this goes out to all the people who hated self-portrait this is to all the people who screamed judas at him including you chaz judas <laughs> 
this is for all the Dylanologists and our friend Andrew Weberman. This is for, I guess, uh, all the spurned folkies, you know, from New York City. And and I guess this is for all of the all the fans that pay close enough attention for Dylan to effing hate them. <laughs> that's you, Jake. And tell them to get an effing life all the time. Yeah, that's that's you, Jake. Yeah. I, I but will, not, uh, not until we're done with the podcast. You know, I just I just want Dylan Hold to off and getting a life until then. I just want I just want Dylan to know that I get it. I get what he's about, and no one else does. Go on, Chaz. Number six for you. <laughs> Number six, Elton John. Oh, whoa! We got some heavy got some, hitters, man. I got I got it's heavy hitters all over the place here, Jake. I got some uh, I got some juicy quotes on this one. So this is there's not a lot to say here, but what's here is juicy. Great, salacious. So apparently even. Bowie and Elton John were friends, and they went to a lot of gay clubs together in the early seventies with Mark Bowen. Woo! Up T Rex. There you go. There's your there's your T Rex T Rex mention. There it is. Boom. Um, apparently, at some time, Bowie stopped liking him. I don't know. We don't know. There's not a lot about Elton John in Bowie's biography. Okay. But in a Rolling Stone, the Rolling Stone from 1970. Says, uh, currently, Bowie appears to be trying to start up a feud in Playboy, admitting in an interview that he had referred to Elton as, quote, the Liberace, the token queen of rock. <laughs> oh, that's juicy installation that's a, right that there. That is a sick burn. Says Bowie, I consider myself responsible for a whole new school of pretensions. They know who they are. Don't you, Elton? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, juicy installation. What happened? Uh, I don't know. Uh, there follows 40 years of bad blood. Wow, 40 <laughs> they never, I don't know. They, like, it's, it's just, it's not like their big things came out in the news and stuff after that, but they were friends, and apparently after that, they were not friends ever again. <laughs> I mean, you you and I have 36 years of bad blood, and that feels like enough, you know? 40 is that a, feels like enough, you 40 know? 40 is a lot. 40 is a lot. So Elton, it came up again after Bowie's death, and Elton John, you know, said he was talented and everything, but hadn't talked to him in like 40 years because of this. So... There you go. Wow. Short, sweet, <laughs> short but salacious one there for you, Jack. That was a good one. That was our first salacious one. I, I want to short but juicy. I want to follow up until we, we get a little farther up here, Jake. I want to follow up with probably my first actual rival. You know, something that has gone on for years and years, and yeah, um, and it is somewhat meaningful. So number five is Joni Mitchell. Joni Mitchell. Yes. Oh, good. Yes. So uh, we talked in the two thousand. 2010 episode about how she <laughs> she ripped him a new one in an interview for seemingly no reason at all and then she uh, she walked that back a couple of years later by saying that the the interviewer misquoted her and he was an he was an a-hole um, but then like sort of apologized by not apologizing and saying that Dylan was bad at guitar and he wore a mask and all this kind of stuff okay so we're, we're gonna go back and I'm gonna give you two two anecdotes to to explain this so um, Joni Mitchell forever since she came up, and I think that it was flattering at first and became quickly annoying, and I, and I guess I understand it, is she's been the female Bob Dylan for as long as she's been a singer, pretty much. Like before there was a Bob Dylan? No, no, no. No, no. The, people call her the female Bob Dylan. No, is I this... know that, but like, but she was around before Dylan, right? Am I wrong? Sorry? No. No. No, she All came, right, she came up in the late 60s, early 70s. Oh, never mind. I was thinking uh, she was earlier. No, it uh, it started off by uh, being a friendly competition and kind of a grudging yeah. competitor. This is kind of a brother sister kind of a thing. They picked and poked at each other. Um, the the first anecdote I'll share is that um, David Geffen, um, the the erstwhile record uh, company owner who started his own company, um, called, called Geffen. Yeah, 
No, called Asylum. This is before Geffen. No. No. He called Asylum <laughs> Records. He stole Bob Dylan from Columbia Records to release Planet Waves and then that live album that we talked about. Okay, so this is David Geffen, and there's Bob Dylan, and there's Joni Mitchell, and there's Carly Simon, and they're all at a record <laughs> listening party. These are He had the distinction of having the, the three highest charting albums at one time. He had wow. He had uh, he had Bob Dylan's Planet Waves. He had Joni Mitchell's Court and Spark, and he had Carly Simon's Hotcakes, <laughs> <laughs> which was selling like it was selling. It was selling like um, it was. It was doing good business. Let's say <laughs> one, two, three. <laughs> um, and so the party was actually for Joni Mitchell. And so they put on the record for everyone to listen. It was like a record listening party. And uh, Bob Dylan pretended to be asleep and <laughs> on the couch. Jerk. And he may, <laughs> I know. He may, have, he may have actually fallen asleep. Anyway, um, that made Joni Mitchell really mad, as you can imagine. Uh-huh. And uh, she doesn't suffer this kind of crap lightly. So she got mad at him right then. That was in 1974, I want to say. Um, she's also made incendiary. These are, this quote, incendiary comments about Joan Baez called Janis Joplin and Grace Slick from... What's Grace Slick from? Jefferson uh, Airplane. Uh, okay. Called them... Uh, By the way, when you said Joni Mitchell before, I was thinking of John Baez. Oh, yeah, no, that, that, that may come up later. Let's just, let's just okay. keep that... All right, all right, all right. Uh, yeah, that, that's he, just, I was getting mixed up for a second there. She Got called it. Jan- that again. She called Janis Joplin and Grace Slick drunken whores at one point. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> Now. Oh, it's salacious. Joni does not hold back. You know, she's she's kind of a badass. <laughs> and so she relays a, a, a further anecdote from a 1994 UNESCO concert in Japan that she... <laughs> UNESCO, I don't know what that stands for. Um, she was playing that with, with Bob Dylan, and um, she was still mad at him from 20 years earlier during when he, uh-huh. when he fell asleep at, at her party. Uh, but they dragged them both out to sing together, you know, to kind of to kind of goose uh-huh. the, goose the audience or whatever. And she didn't want to do it, but they kind of dragged her out there. And this is what she says happened: "Quote, on the third night, they stuck Bob at the mic with me, and if you look closely at it, you can see the little brat. He's up in my face, and he never brushes his teeth, so his breath was like right in my face, and he's mouthing the words to me like a prompter, and he's pushing me off the mic. It's like he's basically dipping my pigtails in ink." <laughs> So there's a lot to unpack oh, there. Uh, Bob Dylan does not brush his teeth, I guess, okay. according to Joni Mitchell. And uh, so she's just been mad at him the whole time. But she also went on the Rolling Thunder Review Tour with him. Um, they've played together multiple times. She's covered multiple of his songs. So there's kind of a brother-sister oh, respect and love. interesting dynamics there. Yeah, it's a very dynamic UNESCO, by the way, is the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. Well, that was what I was Seems about like- to say. That seems like the perfect time to indulge in a salacious petty rivalry. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so there saying. you go. Uh, idolatry turned sibling rivalry. That's Joni Mitchell at number five. All right. Number five. This is a gentleman who was also on our list of best collaborators, not collaborators, <laughs> which is actually the second one because Queen was on there too. That's great. Uh, Lou Reed. Oh, Lou Reed is a like rival. many of the people you know. Lou Reed was an awful person. Yeah, yeah, he was. As far as anyone, as far as I can tell, he was just a horrible human being. Like Van Morrison. Yep. Like Van Morrison. Like I don't know all kinds of people. Like Bob Dylan. 
worse than Bob Dylan, it sounds like. I think so. Um, so Bowie was a huge, as we've talked about multiple times, Bowie was a very early, huge fan of the underground. Um, Bowie has, on record, stated that Lou Reed was the biggest influence on the creation of Ziggy Stardust. Oh, wow. The biggest. Um, the biggest. So, you know, Velvet Underground broke up in, what, 1970? Yeah. And uh, Lou Reed tried to make it on his own and failed miserably with his first solo album, which was supposed to be terrible. I don't have it. I haven't listened to it. But Yeah, I don't know about that. But then, Bowie threw him a lifeline, just as he was like exactly the same time doing Iggy, Iggy Pop, and uh, agreed to produce Lou Reed's 1972 second album, which ended up being Transformer, which hey, is a total rock classic. Total classic. And so Bowie and our old pal Nick Ronson produced it together. And Ronson did some arrangements and stuff, too. Wow, and some Ronson. say Ronson did more than Bowie, but we'll get to that another time. Um, Reed was apparently super jealous and resentful of Bowie's success in general. Oh, good. Like, he just kind of, like, he was the older states, statesman. This well, happened right. more than once. The older statesman. And Bowie, Bowie feels Bowie like he's coming him. up off his coattails and, you know, and was really jealous and resentful of Bowie's success. He, quote, so he says, quote, he's very clever. He snelled at Bowie. He learned how to be hip. So seeing his name with me brought his name to a lot more people. Ooh. Forget that almost no one who developed, who developed Underground were still at that way. Exactly. Uh, Reed resented the success of Transformer in general and Walk on the Wild Side and the song Walk on the Wild Side and Perfect Day in particular. Wait, because, he resented you know, his own there was success? They're the biggest hits ever. His only hits ever, basically. Yeah, pretty much. And uh, he resented that in general and connected that with Bowie and hated wow, it. Wow, that's, that's, uh, that's a special kind of pettiness when you resent your own success. Your own success <laughs> and the people who have made help make it happen. It's oh, like, yeah. how dare you? <laughs> so Bowie and Lurie did become, like, they stayed friends off and on through the years, like right up until, I don't know, the end probably. Um, but also notable was a juicy 1979 giant fight. Mm. So it sounds like it's a little, there were, there's a lot, it's unclear about all the details on this. Bowie was in the middle of recording Lodger. Okay. And so I don't remember where he actually was recording that. It was that, recorded in, I can't remember. I'm going to say it was recorded in Switzerland. Okay. I can't remember. And so Reed was there. They were going out to dinner with a bunch of the band from Lodger. And Reed asked Bowie to produce his next album. But we said he would if Reed stopped drinking and cleaned up his act. Whoa. Reed didn't like that and attacked him. But we said it again shortly afterwards, and Reed attacked him again. Nine people had to pull him off. Wait, wait, wait. It was a physical attack. Uh, Reed yelled at him, quote, Don't you ever say that to me! Don't you ever <laughs> effing say that to me! <laughs> oh, this uh, is... Things started up again at their hotel later on. At least at Bowie's end, Bowie's yelling at Reed to the hotel door to or the room door to come out and fight like a man. Wow. Reed may or may not have been asleep. Hard to say. <laughs> he sleeps like a man. We know that much. I don't know. I don't know. It was a big blow up. Wow. Fight. I didn't know about that. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, that's salacious. I know. Is what that it's is. It's salacious. <laughs> so apparently they made up or something. Bowie appears he did guest vocals on Reed's 2003 album, The Raven. Okay. And according to Laurie Anderson. Yep. The you know, spoken word musician who married Lou Reed later yep. on. Um, after Lou Reed's death, apparently Lori Anderson said that Bowie thought that Reed's collaboration with Metallica was his masterpiece. Yeah, that was that's the worst album ever, apparently. I mean, that's what I heard, but this is what apparently what Bowie told Lori Anderson, was that Bowie thought that that collaboration with Metallica was Lou Reed's masterpiece. Because everyone hated it so much. Got it. I don't know. Check. I don't know. All right, hey. I and mean, this is like, you know, it's coming secondhand because this is at the time when Bowie, you know, didn't talk to anybody or do interviews or anything, so. <laughs> but that is Lou Reed. 
Wow. That's, there you go. That's amazing. I'm not, I don't think Bob Dylan's ever been in a fist fight with anybody. And that's Bowie's second on the list, you know? <laughs> I mean... Bowie doesn't seem like a fighter, but there you go. No, I don't know. Well, both times he got attacked for stupid things he said, so... Yeah, that's true. I guess he... I don't know. Does somebody deserve to get <laughs> attacked by Lou Reed? I'm not sure. <laughs> Hard to say. Who Hard knows? Say. Hey. Lou Reed was probably on a lot of drugs at this time. We're just over halfway through the podcast, Chaz. Give yourself a hand. <laughs> We're almost at an hour already. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I feel like punching Lou Reed in the face right now. <laughs> I feel like getting punched by Lou Reed in the face right now. <laughs> that, would be, that would be a story to tell your children, for sure. <laughs> it certainly would. <laughs> Especially now. <laughs> okay, uh, let's let's go with number four for Bob Dylan. This is number four. <clears throat> this is We're actually more than halfway. That's Every what I mean. I, I said five and six would be the halfway point. I said slightly over halfway. Okay, all right, go. Okay, uh, math is not my strong suit, but still. Boom, 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 Nailed boom. it. All right, this is a gentleman who we haven't talked in detail yet. We will later, but um, this is the number four rival for Bob Dylan is Albert Grossman. Albert Grossman. Nicknamed. I know that name. The Bear. He was Bob Dylan's manager. He also managed Joan Baez, Janis Joplin, The Band, and Peter, Paul, and Mary. He made them all rich and famous. He was ruthless, direct, and hostile as a manager. And he was a damn fine businessman for a time, Chaz. <laughs> Did good biz. Uh-huh. He, he latched onto the folk scene. Yeah, he should have been one of Bowie's managers. I was thinking of all, like, famous people. Well, yeah, you, you seem to... You seem, Glitter, that's I'm okay. Add, I'm going to have Tony Jeffries on there. Yeah, number Which 12. list of people who I should have done that didn't. Number 12 with a bullet, that Tony... Would good, that would have been a good one. Tony Jeffries. Nailed it. Uh, so Grossman definitely helped Bob Dylan to the top. He, he, it was, he latched onto the folk scene early, and he identified shrewdly and correctly who was going to be big, and he made them big. But he may have helped himself out in the process a little too much. Um, he somehow negotiated, or rather gave Bob Dylan a sheet of paper to sign when he was young and impressionable, uh-huh. um, that said that Albert Grossman would uh, enjoy 50% of Bob Dylan's profits in, in perpetuity. Uh, so, Dylan finds out about this, I want to say, oh, I don't know, 1969, 1970, and tries to get out of it, and they had a huge legal battle, and uh-huh. obviously... Um, stop being friends. You can see Albert Grossman in the Don't Look Back documentary. He was always kind of hovering in the in the background. He was he was a little bit of a Colonel Tom Parker, who was Elvis's manager, or at least yeah. he imagined himself to be so. He he he, he imagined himself pulling the puppet strings. And uh, whatever you want to say about Bob Dylan, he's he's nobody's puppet at, in the late sixties. So he got he's out of there. Puppet anywhere, any, at any point. He does whatever the heck he wants to all the time. Right. Whether or not it's a horrible idea. Exactly. And it was not a and good idea. no matter idea, who tells them that it is a horrible idea, they shouldn't do it. It doesn't anyway. It was not a good idea to continue this contract with Albert Grossman. So he took him to court, and he finally got out of it in... Um, there was some settlement that he paid to, to Grossman in, I don't know, 1971 or 72, it appears. And so Dylan was free from then on out to, you know, uh, have decent management and such like that. Um, the last anecdote is that Grossman had negotiated like another 80 tour or 80 date tour after Bob Dylan's uh, debacle in 1966 in the UK. And that's when Dylan uh, may or may not have on purpose smashed his motorcycle to get out of that contract. Cause he, was, <laughs> yeah. he was, he was fried and he couldn't do another, uh, concert tour, but Grossman wanted him to do it. So that's the bear number four. 
All right. Number four over here. We're coming in with a little guy by the name of Gary Newman. Oh. Are you, uh, are you familiar with Gary Newman off the top of your head? Uh, it took a little longer. It was one of those, like, I knew his name. I had to do a little, like... Yeah, that sounds super a familiar. A little strolled on memory lane. All right, well, tell me. So Gary Newman was gigantic for just a couple years, like, yeah. in 1979. Was that the Cars guy? The Cars? What's that? Cars. Cars. Was, yes. Yeah, yeah. Nailed so he was also in a band called Two-Way Army. Okay. Which, uh, apparently they had a big hit, but then, uh, his big hit is Cars. In Cars. It's all just big, thick slabs of synthesizers. Oh, yeah, he was, he was a synth man. In Cars. In Cars. Bow. It's a really bad song. It's a weird song. But it was huge. It was huge. It was just gigantic all of a sudden out of nowhere. Um, and Gary Newman apparently is a huge fan of Bowie, so let's get that out of the way. Bowie, not so much. Bring a little slice just here, Jay. Whoops. Bowie did not like Gary Newman, and apparently everything that Gary Newman represented. Okay. Because Bowie was a huge influence on a lot of these new wave guys, this, like, this late 70s, especially the synthesizer stuff. Um, and so Bowie actually sings about Gary Newman in one of his songs. He does. Which is kind of unprecedented. For Bowie, like, to do this with, you know, anybody. So, in this song, 1980s song, Teenage Wildlife, off of Scary Monsters, he, it's largely about all these new wave people who Bowie influenced but didn't really respect, apparently, and didn't want to be affiliated with. Okay. So, I'm going to read you some lines here. All right. And me. see if you can figure it out here. A broken-nosed vol- mogul are you, one of the new wave boys. Same old thing and brand new drag comes sweeping into view. As ugly as a teenage millionaire, pretending it's a whiz kid world. You'll take me aside and say, well, David, what shall I do? They wait for me in the hallway. I'll say, don't ask me. I don't know any hallways. But they move in numbers, and they've got me in a corner. That's uh, Bowie singing apparently about, apparently the broken-nosed mogul is, uh, is Gary Newman, is wow. what it says. But you can get some. And apparently that's anecdote is him saying about somebody stopping him in the hallway and saying, well, David, what shall I do? They wait for me in the hallway. or stopping them. Apparently that happened, and that was Gary Newman who told him that. So here's Gary Newman saying this about Bowie. And this gets salacious, Jake. You ready? I'm ready. <laughs> the thing I admired about Bowie, like a lot of stars in that period, was that he was larger than life. I'd have been scared, uh, assless to meet him. What do you say? The man's from outer space. <laughs> Later, I actually met him, but we didn't get on, which is a great disappointment. I did a show for Kenny Everett years ago, and Bowie was on the same show. I was there. Geldof was there, presumably Bob Geldof. Yep. It was a bit of a fan club convention, all watching. And Bowie spotted me, stopped everything, and made the guards come and throw me out. <laughs> I was gutted. I mean, what was I to him? Just some little upstart who popped up with a quirky record. Effing winker. <laughs> <laughs> well, I gotta say, uh, unless something happened that, that never came out, I, I'm, on, I'm on Team Gary Newman at this point. I mean, this sounds like Bowie was a gigantic jerk to him. Yeah, for no reason. Like, I don't, it does not seem like Gary Newman did anything to deserve this. I can no. see, like... Bowie not respecting Gary Newman, but I yeah. don't know how that throw, comes in. He's throwing him out of the set of a show they were both on. Yeah, that's weird. <laughs> that's bizarre. Oh, I know. That doesn't seem very Bowie-esque either. No, it doesn't. That, like, that was the past Bowie being a jerk. Like, he, you know, he cleaned up by that time. He yeah, was yeah, a yeah. more decent human being by 79. He wasn't hoovering cocaine. <laughs> no, he wasn't. And so Bowie says about Newman, what Newman did, he did excellently, but in repetition. And the same information coming over again and again. Once you've heard one piece... It's a false idea of high-tech society and all that, which is, it doesn't exist. I don't think we're anywhere near that sort of society. It's an enormous myth that's perpetuated, unfortunately, I guess, by readings of what I've done in that rock area, or area at least. 
And the consumer area television has an awful lot to answer for with its fabrication of the computer world myth. Jeez, what? Thanks, Bowie. <laughs> what does that I mean? I don't know. Oh, and then this one doesn't go on, and you know, because Gary Newman kind of disappears after that. He didn't last sure. very long. One so, so Bowie didn't have to put up with him anymore after <clears> that. <throat> but it just was like so, I don't know. That's crazy. Just, yeah, just kind of vicious and kind of, you know, yeah, yeah salacious. unnecessary. Gratuitous. One last one little nugget say. for you, Jake, that has nothing to do with, well, very little to do with that, but just is worth mentioning. All right. Is it Gary Newman fans? Yeah. Are called Newmanoids. <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> no, but you do now. I do now. And I wanted you to. I just, I couldn't. I can't wait to forget that nugget. <laughs> but it's so zesty. <laughs> so it's... zesty, Jake. All right, number three, take it. We're <laughs> okay. going along here. All right, number three on Bob Dylan's rivalry list is everyone in New York City who was jealous of his record contract and then uh, were outraged when he departed the folk movement. That's... <laughs> Half of New York City, Chad. Everyone in New York, right? Everyone in New York who... Uh, so Dylan came along to New York, just a scruffy little guy, and uh, he, he slept on everyone's couches, and he used mm-hmm. he used them, and he took all of their songs, and then he... Just like Lewin Davis from Inside Lewin Davis. That's exactly right. So then we he... We haven't mentioned that in a while, so I had to bring it back up. Thanks, because it needs to be longer. Not the stealing song part, just the sleeping on everyone's couches. These uh, podcasts need to be longer, is what you're trying to say. <laughs> So I was thinking, I've got, I got Nick Johnson into this episode, got inside Lewin Davis. It's the greatest hits. So somehow the uh, the fresh... We, we, we all do this together. It was great. <laughs> Man, was great. I cried a little when we did that. <laughs> just cried just a little bit. Uh, just a little bit. So Dylan, the fresh-faced youth, um, somehow became the one that got the Columbia record contract for no reason. Uh, uh-huh. uh You know, out of all these people that helped him out. And then... You know, fast forward a couple of years later, so everyone was annoyed with him. But then he he departs the folk um, slash protest movement, and then everyone really gets their 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 underwear in a bunch about that. Um, Dylan wrote a single that came out between Highway 61 Revisited and Blonde on Blonde called Positively okay. Fourth Street. This is the okay. song that goes, "You got a lot of nerve and say you are my friend." I, I was down, you just stood there grinning. That one? Yeah. Okay, so that was a big... <laughs> As always, your impression of Bob Plus, but... Thank you, man. Uh, so that was a big hit, and everyone assumed at first that it was about a girl, but this was right when Bob Dylan was writing about things, you know, kind of two at a time or three at a time. And it ended up uh, being that this song was about all these people that abandoned him and were were not by his side when he decided to do something different than what they wanted him to do. So I just have kind of a list of people that this song may be about. It's probably about all of them, but it could be about some of these people. So this is a little trip down memory lane about the early 60s and Bob Dylan's relationship with these people. So there's Izzy Young, who is the director of the Folklore Center, which had a, a lot of folk songs and sheet music and stuff. He said, quote, um, after this song came out, he said, quote, he comes in and takes from us, uses my resources, then he leaves and he gets bitter. He writes a song and he gets bitter. All right, he said that. Erwin Sibler, <laughs> editor, enough, yes. editor of the Sing Out magazine, um, which championed Bob Dylan in his early songwriting days. Erwin um, criticized Bob's move away from folk styles. Bob Dylan wasn't real anymore after he went away from the folk style. Um, Tom Paxton, who was a fellow songwriter and singer, he criticized folk rock in general, and he wrote an article, you'll like this, Chaz, this is very clever, he wrote an article called, quote, Folk Rot, 
in Sing Out magazine. <laughs> oh, I see what he did there. You know what oh, he did yeah. there? Whoa. Can you see it? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Uh, Phil Ox, who is also a fellow singer-songwriter, um, both of whom these guys you know, ended up kind of coming back around later. Um, he was a folk singer who didn't like a Dylan Rock song, and then Dylan supposedly threw him out of his limousine in the middle of like Fifth Avenue in New York City or something. <laughs> awesome. That, that's probably apocryphal, but we're going to pretend that happened. That sounds great. Um, and then Susie Rotolo, who was his lady friend throughout the entire, his entire rise... Um, who he ended up, I don't know if she dumped him or he dumped her, but he was get he was getting on with Joan Baez at that time. This was his, this was the lady on the front of, uh, the freewheeling Bob Dylan. That's his girlfriend on that. Okay. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, and then Richard Farina, who supported Dylan in the beginning and was somehow entangled in the whole Susie Rotolo, Joan Baez mess. He was somehow all up in that. Um, a lot of, a lot of kind of incestuous, uh, folk singing romances and bromances and all kinds of manses. <laughs> bro romances, you know, at all. Yeah, bro romances. Uh, so here's to everyone in New York City who was jealous of Bob Dylan's record contract and then outraged when he departed the folk movement. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Number three, this might be... The numbers one and two are more important, but I think this might be the most salacious one. Wow, you've got so much salacity. (laughs) I don't know. We'll see. At least, yeah, I got a lot of quotes on this one. I wish Bob Dylan And that is a little man by the name of Morrissey. He's not a little man. He's a big man. Yeah, he is a big man. Morrissey, you know, the uh, lead singer of the Smiths, Mm -hmm. who has gone on to a long and checkered solo career. Yeah, and a curious obsession with right-wing politics for some reason. A curious obsession with all kinds of things. I don't know. That guy's weird. He is a weirdo. He's a weirdo. He's a ladies' man, but uh, I don't know. This is another, you know, possibly gay type, but I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? Is he or isn't he type thing? Um, So Morrissey was, you know naturally for the time period was a big fan of Bowie growing up. Makes a lot of sense. You know, sure. Smiths were, were big the first half of the eighties. Um, but there seemed to be some kind of mutual respect there. Bowie covers a Morrissey song and his 1993 album, uh, black tie white noise. And it covers a song. I know it's going to happen. That's not even a Smith song. That's a Morrissey solo song. Okay. Um, and Morrissey ends up opening for Bowie in 1995 on the outside tour, which we just talked about recently. Uh, but, in the early, like, uh, Morrissey quits early, like, before his contract is up. Like, just stops after just a few shows. And then uh, they have to scramble to find, like, they just get local opening acts for the rest of that, like, of the yeah. tour, because they don't have anybody lined up. Like, Morrissey just drops out. Morrissey and, cancels uh, all of And reportedly, he quit early because, it might be because Bowie was overshadowing it. Mm. Which seems a little, uh, you know... Isn't that like by design? Happen when you're opening <laughs> for somebody else. It, I'm, just, it could, I'm just saying. I'm it could saying. be by design. We're not sure. <laughs> so... And from that point, Morrissey then kind of publicly kicks sand in Bowie's eyes for the next 20 years. Mm. Bowie doesn't respond in any way. Yeah, that's the <laughs> It's little, a very one-sided feud. That's the only way to Morrissey do it. Morrissey just going after Bowie again and again and again for no apparent reason. I couldn't find anything in which Bowie says, like, publicly wow. says anything negative about Morrissey. That's the right move. That's the Dylan move. Just don't say anything. Just don't say anything. That's Bowie in this. Let them punch Bowie's themselves at that point. His career, this is later on in his career when he didn't do anything. And when he was just a polite gentleman most of the time. Uh, Morrissey discussed Mick Ronson, and because Mick Ronson produced Morrissey's 1992 album, Arsenal, which I don't know. Right. Well, okay. Morrissey said, quote, None of David's $20,000 a day U.S. guitarists had a single grade of Mick's natural style. Even Eno only worked with David for 14 days. 
I don't know why you like bring Eno into the second half of that sentence. It cracks me up. Eno's like, who are you guys again? I don't know either of you guys. <laughs> he called Bowie showy and said that Bowie was, quote, only relevant by accident in a GQ interview in the same year. <laughs> showy. Why don't we use showy? That's so good. I don't know. Are you ready for this next one, Jake? Yeah. I, I wish this has happened so much. This is so silly. Tony Visconti, Bowie's a longtime uh, producer who yeah. also produced at least one Morrissey album. Frenemy. Visconti tried to get Bowie and Morrissey to do a duet cover of <clears throat> You've Lost That Loving Feeling. What? <laughs> in 2006. Why? Morrissey was up for it, Bowie declined. Oh, that's a great call, Bowie. Great call. <laughs> oh, man, I wish this turn had existed, Jake. No. It just sounds so No, amazing. you don't. No, you don't. Don't lie. Yes, I do. No, you At don't. At this point, oh, come on. <laughs> just a real You life. lost that loving feeling. <laughs> oh. Can you picture, like, Morrissey and Bowie, like, trying to out vibrato each other on You've Lost That Loving Feeling? Oh, that'd be so great. They do have similar voices, I will say. <laughs> Right, so, uh, this comes up at some points in like maybe 2011, 2012. Morrissey publicly says he's kind of done with this, uh, like this feud. It's just be over. It was just him being like a brat, and the Bowie knows that. Oh yeah. Then in uh, Morrissey in, two, in two, 2013, Morrissey was going to use an old photo of him with Bowie. Okay. For a re-release of his 1989 single, "The Last of the Famous International Playboys." Hmm. Uh, and so by the fact that Bowie had no control over this photograph, which he had no, you know, rights to or anything, Bowie found out about it and he pressured EMI into not, which was, they were on the same record label, and Bowie pressured EMI into not using it. He's like, hello, EMI, I'm pressuring you. EMI did not use it. Wow. Bowie's pressure request. Way to go, Bowie. A lot of power. And finally, Jake, uh, Morrissey in 2016, Morrissey did an on-stage tribute to famous people who died in 2016. Bowie clearly having died in 2016. Yeah. Bowie mentions all kinds of famous musicians and famous people in general. Does not mention Bowie at all. Someone in the crowd yells, calling him the C word. <laughs> <laughs> the only possible response. <laughs> <laughs> over specifically over his uh, his lack of mentioning Bowie. Wow. <laughs> this is so what petty. A long, checkered, salacious story. This is that so was petty. Wow. I, mean, I, get, I get the impression Morrissey has a lot of one-sided feuds. Oh yeah, he's, a, he's an interesting fellow. Well, I don't know much about his solo career. I have, I have all the Smiths albums, but I don't. You do? I don't, not yeah, I never, I never, yeah, I never, I do. I never got into them at all. And I like them. I like them. That's fine. In general, that's fine. So you like Morrissey better than Bowie, is what you're saying? Oh, clearly, yeah. clearly, Jake. Mm-hmm. So, In fact, I'm changing the name of the podcast to Morrissey versus Dylan. I would rather put my hand through a glass window than do Morrissey versus Dylan. I just want to know that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got 35 episodes to go, so... 35 years left, baby. No problem. Morrissey. <laughs> oh, oh, sweet Morrissey. Sweet Morrissey. Sweet confounding I Morrissey. I hope you listen bad mouses in the press. Oh, that'd be great for us. That really would be very good for the podcast if we did that. <laughs> All right, yeah, Jake, number two. All right, all, here we go. Are you ready? Home. It's a it's a heavy hitter. This is this is a fascinating relationship. Uh, we have number two with the bullet. It's Paul Simon. Paul Simon. All right. Paul Simon. Now we have a real we have a real classic big bro little bro kind of a thing going on here. 
Who's the big bro and who's the little bro, though? Oh, come on, Chaz. Why would it be a rivalry if it were the other way around? No, Dil- I mean, like, which one of them is the big bro? Which Dylan's, the the, bro? Dylan's the big bro. Paul Simon's the little Dylan bro. Dylan is. Okay, well, because I know Simon started in the late 50s. He did. He, um, he, he but I wasn't a, sure when you know Simon and Garfunkel got their first, like had their first album. It was stuff. it, it was, was early sixties. I don't know when it's at. It was just they got famous just after Bob Dylan. Okay, okay, because they're, they're, so, they're total contemporaries. So this do. is this is the problem though. Is Dylan Dylan made it there first, and Dylan influenced Paul Simon in his songwriting. Okay, um, so. Uh, Paul Simon was not generally considered part of that New York folk circle, you know, along with Joan Baez and Bob Dylan and stuff like that, even though he was there, you know, and he was basically came up just a little bit after, after Bob Dylan. Um, Paul Simon always thought that he was as good and deserving of Dylan's fame. And it should be noted that Paul Simon has, has sold like tens of millions of more albums than Bob Dylan has in his right. career. And he's received universal acclaim and he has what a million well, Grammy he's, Awards. He's also arguably never really gotten bad. No, that's true. I think he's got a couple stinkers, but not yeah. not like not like Bowie and Dylan. No no no. He he definitely like he has probably he stayed classy throughout. He still like pops up every five or six years with a new album that everyone like thinks is just a solid good album. You know? He might have it's not like transcended. They're always solid and good albums. And they always sell well. They always debut at two yeah. or three or one. And he may have the defining pop rock album of the 80s, which is Graceland. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, okay. well, in 1986, I think that came out, right? When, like, Bowie and Dylan are at their worst. They're at their absolute nadir. Nadir. Yeah. Nadir, would some would say. Um, Bowie released the Labyrinth soundtrack the same year that Graceland came out. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, and Dylan... Re- time, how'd you do that? Dylan released Knocked Out Lotus. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Paul Simon, you just won Bowie versus Dylan. Well done. Wow, Paul Simon. But this is the thing, Chaz. So Paul Simon is always considered the second best American songwriter. Always. Yeah, it's true, yeah. Dylan is always number one. There's nobody, you know, besides some fans online that would say otherwise. And this drove Paul Simon crazy from the beginning. We're going on like, Uh we're going on like 50 years of of him being mad that he's second (laughs) place. And this is where the rivalry, this is where the rivalry, really, really begins and ends. This is, this is uh, Paul Simon's quote. He says, I usually come in second to Dylan, and I don't like coming in second. End quote. So when they started yeah. their, when they became famous, uh, both Bob Dylan and, and Paul Simon, Simon and Garfunkel had the same producer as Bob Dylan on the same, okay. on the same record label. Um, and, yet, and yet Simon always tried to elevate himself while mocking Dylan. He he appreciated Dylan's early work. He was kind of like the first person to say, like, "Oh yeah, I like I like Dylan's earlier work." You know, his later work is not is not is not much for me. Um, he proved Paul this. Simon, the he, original hipster. He proved this in 1966 uh, by writing a parody of a Bob Dylan song, which is just god awful. It's so bad. It's on no, parsley sage. <laughs> it's on parsley sage rosemary and thyme, which was. A oh, hit. I think I have that one. You do. I so go and listen to a song called. Oh, Claudia does. Claudia likes Paul Simon a lot. A single desultory Philippic, uh, or how I was Robert McNamara into submission. That's the song. <laughs> I like it already. <laughs> it's terrible. Go listen to it. It's terrible. All right, we'll do. Um, so apparently they tried to, maybe it was Albert Grossman, or no, you know who it was? It was Robert Shelton, who is the writer for New York Times. He tried to um, get Paul Simon and Bob Dylan to you know, meet and, uh, and hang out and be friends because they had so much in common. But they yeah. were very awkward when they met in, in a conversation. 
And Dylan made the mistake of getting really drunk and laughing through a Simon and Garfunkel set in New York. <laughs> oh, Dylan! <laughs> Apparently, it had nothing to jerk. do. It had nothing to do you with Simon. Old, and, <laughs> <bad jerk. laughs> it had nothing to do with Simon and Garfunkel. They were just they were just ripped. But that that was uh, that didn't make Paul Simon happy. And much like Joni Mitchell, he, he just never forgave him. Yeah. Um, they toured together in 1999, and. Uh, Paul Simon requested a duet with Dylan in 2011 for an album, um, but he just never heard back. Bob Dylan just never like said yes or no or anything. He that just, sounds like Dylan, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So there's, they, they're just kind of a study in contrast, even though they seem similar. And it seems like Paul Simon gets, gets so much love. But Bob Dylan just gets that much more love, and it drives him crazy. Yeah. So like Dylan was hip and ironic, and Simon was sincere and wimpy. Yeah. Dylan yeah. gets a degree of respect and worship that Simon never got. Dylan is labeled, quote, mysterious while he's being opaque, which is always. But Di- but Simon is labeled as aloof. Dylan, okay. Dylan garners affection and worship while Simon garners respect. And Dylan's been accused of plagiarism, as we've mentioned many times on this. Uh-huh. But it doesn't <laughs> seem to make a dent at all in his career. Yeah, uh, Simon true. is consumed and dogged by similar allegations for his album Graceland, which we already which we already mentioned. Yes. Um, so Simon has always just tried to one up Dylan and shove that success in his face. But here's here's the tagline: Dylan doesn't care at all. <laughs> he doesn't uh-huh. say anything but nice things about Paul Simon. He doesn't engage in this feud. And I just imagine uh paul simon it like, probably his, just drives paul simon crazy it does so he's in his house Dylan, Dylan, you know, it'd be better like he'd like it more if Dylan just say something mean about oh him, absolutely you know, give righteous right give him some a sense of righteous anger i just imagine paul simon like wandering around one of his several mansions just being like that dylan that dylan so um Paul Simon's really short. Bane's popping out of his poor little bald head, yeah. Poor Paul Simon's really short, and he's bald, and um, yeah. he's not much to look at. Not that Dylan is, either, but... Uh, <laughs> Dylan clearly. has a great fluff of curly hair. Yeah, he's got something. You know, Paul Simon <laughs> went bald when he was, like, 27 or something. Um, John Lennon called... <laughs> John Lennon called Paul Simon the singing dwarf. <laughs> oh, John, come on. Come on, that was not necessary. <laughs> oh, but it's so funny. So, number two on Bob Dylan's rivalry list is The Singing Dwarf. Back to you, Chaz. All right, number two for me is Mick Jagger. Wow, here uh, we go. Mick Jagger's a total frenemy type situation. In number three, Mick. Weird. Mick Jagger. Weird. Yeah, we got another Mick up there. Uh, so Bowie and Mick, you know, he started hanging out in the early 70s. They met sometime in the early 70s when Bowie was coming big. Uh, Rolling Stones are obviously, you know, gigantic. They were like on their almost on their way out by that time. No, they were really they were still giant through the first half of the seventies. Oh, absolutely, they, still they were had a lot of respect and everything. They, they lasted. Huge. They lasted through seventy eight with some girls. So, okay, all right, all right. There you go. And so they were still huge, and there was you know just a friend like a friendship and rivalry between these two for much of their relationship. Uh, Jagger quote here uh, quote He'd always look at my clothes labels when we would see me. Or when he would see me, he'd give me a hug, and I could feel him going up behind the collar of my shirt to see what I was wearing. <laughs> and yes. it seems like the base, this is a very much a big brother, little brother, with Bowie as the little brother. Yep. But but the same, similar with Lou Reed, though, is Jager started to resent the fact that Bowie was becoming bigger than, you know. Right. 
like the, the stones then start falling and Bowie keeps rising and you know oh, yeah. there's definitely some of that he tension between their relationships um, Bowie reportedly wrote Rebel Rebel to quote piss Mick Jagger off <laughs> straight up bro and there's several I mean this Aladdin scene has a lot of stuff on it Gene Genie for instance that's very much like in the in the realm of the, of the stones definitely Bowie covers let's spend the night together and turns it from what is kind of a sweet song in the Rolling Stones version to what is not at all sweet for a song mm. in, uh, in Bowie's version. Um, in 1974, uh, the Rolling Stones released It's Only Rock and Roll. The album cover was by an artist named Guy Peelhart. Bowie stole that artist to create the cover for Diamond Dogs. Okay. <laughs> uh, Jagger famously responded, you don't even show Bowie a new pair of shoes. <laughs> You don't even show Bowie a new pair of shoes. It was almost kind of a hobby, but Bowie liked stealing Jagger's women. Okay. On purpose? Including having an affair with his first wife, Bianca. Oh, boy. I think it's his first wife. This is is the most salacious book. It's salacious. It's salacious. Very salacious. Uh, There are all kinds of, like, this is one of those great, like, questions about this, is people wonder to no end if the two of them uh, slept together or not. I'm sure they did. They both definitely dabbled. Oh, yeah. On both teams, all over the place. But <laughs> both were teams. more, you know, more towards women. There was definitely men involved. All uh, the one teams. fairly reputable source did say that she had a threesome with the two of them. Um, so there's that. Great. Great. Super salacious. Super That's salacious. Disgusting. Not as much fun as Morrissey. Uh, Jagger apparently tried to sabotage part of the recording of Lodger in 1979. He was at the studio for no reason. <laughs> this is the same, the same recording, like, this was in probably within a couple of weeks of the whole fist fight with Lou Reed, actually. And this was after Jagger the drugs. Jagger showed up in the studio for some reason. I don't know why he was there. And tried to just kind of like mess with things, like, just started turning, do- turning dials and knobs and stuff and like messing with people and trying to, you know, get the guitarists to screw up and stuff during shooting. <laughs> I think he was just goofing around, but apparently yeah. he tried to do this. When it didn't work, he went off to some other artist and started messing with them instead. Okay. Um, let's not forget the famous single and video for 1985's Dancing in the Street. Uh, who can, which the two of them are just trying to, like, out-awful each other on camera. They did the entire Dancing in the Street thing in, like, 12 hours. So... Like, they showed up, like, the, from when their planes landed, they went straight to the studio, they recorded that song in less than six hours, and then went out and recorded the video immediately afterwards. That's insane. And they've done the entire process in, like, 12 hours. So I have a question for you. And that video is them like trying to one-up each other in the most awful, ridiculous... I mean, that that is a very much a so-bad-it's-good video. Oh, like, for sure. It's the epitome of so-bad-it's-good. It's wildly entertaining for all so the wrong reasons. I, I have a question for you about that video. Yeah. Who do you think won that video of the two of them? Who, who beats the other? I don't know. It's hard to say on the video. Now, they had a live performance of the song later on that Mick Jagger clearly won. Yeah, but he's a great live performer. But it's just kind of like... Eh, he's, I mean, Jagger just destroyed it. Rips it. Just rips it, yeah. Just rips it. I was like, I mean, it's practically like stepping in front of Bowie to like, you know, do a yeah. little chicken dance thing. <laughs> Stick his lips out. Dance. I love it. Um, they had houses on the same private island in the West Indies. Oh, for Pete's for sake. several years in Mustique. Oh my goodness. Um, but really, it, this is this is kind of stuff just happened throughout their careers. Wow. And really, the key of it was Bowie idolized him. Yeah. And Jagger was threatened by him. Yeah. Especially solo success, because Jagger really, he seems threatened by successful solo artists, since Jagger's solo career never really went anywhere meaningful, you know? It was always just the Rolling Stones. And Jagger tried, you know, multiple times to do a a big solo career, and it just never really happened. So he apparently was jealous in general of successful solo artists like Bowie. 
And the two of them just were kind of like friends, you know? It's just a total frenemy situation for a giant part of their lives. Apparently, they didn't have much to do with each other the last 10, 15 years. But uh, this happened all through the 70s, 80s, into the 90s, for sure. And that is, uh, that's number two. That's that's a little, a little gentleman by the name of Mick Jagger. He was in a band called The Rolling Stones, Jake. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. I have not heard of any of these people, really, that you've yeah, been that's saying. That's right. You know, that's all right. That's, I know. that's why you're here, Jake. Just, well, you know, I'm being educated. I'll mentor you. We can, we can, I can be the big brother now. I'm being educated. Brother, and I'll teach you. I'll teach okay. you about music, Jake. I do not see. All right, Jake, get us up with the number one. I I have to assume I know who it is because you haven't mentioned the person yet. Go for it. All right, who is it? You can say. It's got to be Joan Baez. It is Joni Baez. Bob Dylan calls her Joni because they were lovers, Chaz. (laughs) Does the word lovers bother you like it does me? I don't like. Yeah, it does. It really makes me uncomfortable. I don't really know why, but yes. I don't know either. It makes me think of Jimmy and that SNL. (laughs) Yes, the lovers. It's, yeah, who is it? It's It's definitely Will Ferrell. What's that? It's definitely Will Ferrell is one of them. Will Ferrell, yeah. And I can picture the woman, Rachel something other. I can't remember her last name. We were lovers. I was with my lover. Yes, exactly. And they're always like wearing turtlenecks. Yeah, it's great. (laughs) Well, they're always in a hot tub, aren't they? I don't know. It was just one episode. I don't know. Anyway, Bob Dylan and Joan Baez were in that hot tub. They were lovers. (laughs) They were lovers. Do you please pronounce it as lovers? Lovers. They were lovers. That's terrible. (laughs) I can't do it. I won't do it. Now listen, Chaz. Now yeah, listen, I'm in the listening. in the <laughs> in the career arc, I mean, clearly Bob Dylan destroys Joan Baez and most every other solo artist um, ever in terms except of how, for, except for David Bowie, of course, he, he, no, ah. not at all. But uh, the reason that this is the number one rivalry is because Joan Baez is the is the only person on the planet who can say I helped Bob Dylan become as famous as he was. And I'm still here to tell about it. Uh-huh. And she never let anyone forget about that for the rest of time. <laughs> so she has made a habit in interviews about, um, you know, sort of like gently demeaning Dylan um, when he when she knew him when he was young and before he was famous and when they were lovers. 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 Uh, she has. I read. I read through as many interviews as I could, and just let me tell you, it took me a long time. But here, here's some quotations uh, when she talks about Dylan in those days. She has called him, quote, a grubby little thing, quote, <laughs> my little vagabond, quote, frantic and, and lost, so wrapped up in his ego, quote, the kid, quote, street urchin, quote, scruffy little mess. <laughs> she has called him all those things. Now, of course, uh, Baez has made... Uh, you know, part of her latter career here, starting in the seventies, on well, even into the, in the sixties, on covers of Bob Dylan songs. She she released an entire album um, with cover songs. She wrote uh, one of her best songs. Um, it's a great song. It's called Diamonds and Rust about their relationship. On that same album, she she sings as Bob Dylan for a verse of Simple Twist of Fate. Which I is, remember that song. It's wonderful. I mean, I've heard that song. It's wonderful. Uh, she toured in 1975 and Which I gotta say, she's the best Bob Dylan impression I've ever heard. She's wonderful. It's wonderful. And it's obviously because they have a history together. It, like, makes yeah. it a hundred times better. Um, she toured with him in 75 and 76 on the Rolling Thunder Review. The last time they performed together was for some sort of one-off, um, concert called Peace Sunday. That was in 
1984, Bob wanted her to go on tour with him to sell tickets. And when she went along, she thought, hey, Bob, you know, let's go play a song together like old times. And he didn't want to do that. He just wanted her to sell tickets for him. Uh, <laughs> like, literally, she was out in the ticket booth up front selling tickets. <laughs> She's like, hey. No, literally. Check out my Bob Dylan impression. He didn't pay her. Um, Bob, the, the impetus, of course, for the actual rivalry is she took him out whenever possible in the early 60s on her concerts and introduced him to her fans, um, who weren't so sure about Bob Dylan at first, but with her endorsement, you know, that helped him get to the Newport Folk Festival uh-huh. and, and on the rise. Uh, <clears throat> what happened is that Dylan went on tour in 1965 in the UK, which is, again, um, captured in Don't Look Back. Judas! Judas, that was pre-Judas. This is pre-Judas. Uh, yeah. oh, Sorry, pre-Judas. buddy. Oh, okay. That was a premature I take, Judas. I take back my half of Judas. Thank you, Judas. Uh, you can see on film that um, Dylan takes her along, but he does not invite her to play with him like she did for him. And there's some excruciating scenes where he's with his new hip uh, druggy friends, and she's kind of uh-huh. like the high school girlfriend that went to visit him at college. And she's like, Bobby, let's sing this song together. And he's kind of ignoring her, and all the all of his hip buddies are making fun of her. And it just looks it looks terribly devastating for her. And it's really no. really uncomfortable to watch. Bob, come <laughs> I know on. Bob did not do a good job uh, breaking up. He was a t- he was a total jerk. And um, so I, I understand her resentment. She has she has in 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 the latter years here. Um, definitely walked some of that back and said it's all water under the bridge. It's been, what, 50 years or whatever. Um, she recently put out her last studio album, I guess, and did her last tour. So she's been doing a round of interviews and such. She always gets asked about him. Um, she's not, you know, she's much more gracious these days than she used to be. But that was uh-huh. a, uh, that was, that was quite a rivalry. He, uh, yeah. you know, she had the one up on him. And now they're like 80 years old. The end. Number one for you. <laughs> yeah. Number one, Woo! Bob Dylan. Here, let's head things out over. Number one for David Bowie is a little guy by the name of Mark Bolan. Oh, it's here he is. Here he here is. T Rex, so baby. Mark Bolan was from T Rex, most notably. If you're not aware of who Mark Bolan was, and it's, it wouldn't be surprising, most especially for Americans, because yeah. Anyway, but they caused an um, even greater so, sensation than. So these like, two like grew up together in a sense. They. uh they were friends since the mid-60s when neither one of them were anything, when they were David Jones and Mark Feld rather than David Bowie and Mark Bullen. Right. They. Uh, this is a great story. This is how they met. They had the same manager briefly, and they're both young and poor and unsuccessful, and they owed money to their manager and couldn't pay him, both of them. So they uh, to, to work off some of the money that they owed him, they were both painting his office at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's lovely. So they were both in there like, on the same day, painting his office to to make up some of the money they oh, owe this manager, that's funny. and that's how they got to know each other. Apparently, uh, <laughs> like neither apparently Mark Bolin liked his boots or something, and they talked and they became friends. And so they were friends off and on, like for the rest of Bolin's life. Bolin died in the late seventies. Yeah. Um, but they both had like this very similar like career trajectory. They both were mods at the start, you know, which Bowie did. Then they both kind of moved in this folky period. His story songs, which is what. Before T-Rex existed, it was Tyrannosaurus Rex. Yes. And um, and Tyrannosaurus Rex was doing a little better than Bowie was. Bowie actually opened for Tyrannosaurus Rex in 1969. Wow. Famously doing Mime. Okay. <laughs> of course. Just, 
just a little bit of pre-space oddity. As one like does. Mark Bullen asked him to do mime <laughs> rather than to do music. And I get the impression it was kind of a slight. It was kind of like a uh-huh. take yeah. that type yeah, yeah. thing. Don't a lot sing. Of this, very frenemy. Very back and forth. Why don't you do some mime tonight, David? That's right. So Tyrannosaurus Rex was was definitely doing better. They had a solid fan base and everything. This is when they were folky before they were T-Rex. And then Bowie had a hit with Space Oddity. Yeah. So then things are like looking better for Bowie. But then what often gets forgotten is like Manus sold the world and Hunky Dory did nothing when they started. Right. Like they didn't sell much. It was no big deal. Bowie looked like he was going back to the trash heap because he didn't have another hit then until 72 when Ziggy Stardust came around. So in that interim, um, Tyrannosaurus Rex turns into T-Rex yeah. and goes glam. Goes supernova. It was super glow. Yeah, it was huge. So huge. Tony Visconti produced both bands. And oh, Tony Visconti actually left Bowie to concentrate on T-Rex <clears throat> uh, after Menace of the Roll, which is how Tony Visconti missed Hunky Dory and Ziggy Stardust. Mm. Um, but it's also notable, Bullen appears on Bowie's forgotten 1970 single, The Pretty Star. Ooh. Bullen's wife apparently said that Bowie, quote, wasn't good enough to play with Bullen. <laughs> Snap. Now, Glam, like where that actually came from, some start the date started Glam to a big Bowie performance with in the, from 1970 with the hype, which we talked about recently in the 1970 yep. show, where they all wore costumes. Heard that. Um, and uh, so some people date that as the start of Glam. Bolin had cl- uh, claimed several times he was never there; they didn't know anything about it. But there's pictures of him at the show. So then Bolin, like very shortly after that, starts doing makeup and starts doing costumes, and really? T-Rex becomes. Huge. Oh yeah, they were a sensation. They were gigantic. There were people calling them like the next Beatles. They had yeah, I wrote this down. They had eleven top ten singles in a row in the UK. Dang. Yes. No, not not. Yeah, yeah, yes. They had eleven top ten hits in the UK in a row. Wow. Which is just ridiculous. They yeah. never really broke America, which is why they're one of the reasons they're not as remembered. And they just didn't. They went supernova, but it didn't last very long. You know, it's yeah. like three, four years, and they were done. Yeah. But there were, there were people calling them the next Beatles. Yeah, they were like the stuff. biggest thing. This was happening all over. They were huge. And now, like in America, you know, it's pretty much Get It On is the only song anyone remembers. You know? Bang on gone. Get it on. Bang on. Bang That's like, yeah, it's the only song really anyone It's a great riff. Great riff. So then in 72, you know, Bowie blows up with Ziggy Stardust, definitely in the glam universe there. Um, which I think, you know, Mark Bowen at this point doesn't, they're very close, they were born the same year, they're very close to the same age too. I think Mark Bowen's just a little bit young, a couple months younger. Interesting. Um, Bowie famously mentions T-Rex in the song All the Young Dudes, which he gave to Mop the Hoople, right. another glam rock band. All the young um, dudes. All the young dudes. Carry the news. I got T-Rex. Um, so... By 73, you know, Bowie is sitting on top of the world. Aladdin Sands coming out. And by that point, T-Rex is on, is falling. They're like oh. on, you know, on the other side of it. Bowen says, quote, I don't consider David to be even remotely near big enough to give me any competition. I don't think that David is anywhere near the charisma or balls that I have. He's not wow. going to make it in any sort of way. <laughs> he said this after Bowie was famous? And this is in 1973. Like, <laughs> Bowie had already made it. He, he made yeah, it there, that's not okay? true. Sorry. Sorry and Bowie guy. made it in America, too. Like, he, he was making some, some, doing some decent stuff in America. And T-Rex never really broke America. Never got it, yeah. Uh, there was a T-Rex album called Zinc Alloy and the Hidden Riders of Tomorrow, which uh-huh. is widely seen as a parody of Ziggy Stardust and the, the uh, sure. Spiders from Mars. I wonder why they would think that. I don't know. And really, like, you know, 74, 
T Rex it just kind of disappear. They just kind of tank. It's just, they're just kind of done. And um, so Bowen keeps trying, and T Rex releases more albums that nobody cares about. And so we, we fast forward ahead then to '77 because Bowie keeps doing you know brisk business and getting bigger and doing different stuff. And she's you know he's out of glam by that time. He's moved into soul and then moved on from that. And so in 1977, by this time, Bowen has his own TV show, which is called Mark. Mark. Um, it only lasted, I want to say it was like six episodes, six, seven episodes. It wasn't very long. But Bowie was, he wasn't getting a very good guest. He wasn't doing amazing or anything. But part of the shtick was he would play, he'd play with the guests, like play, you know, play guitar with the guests and everything. Okay. And uh, he requested, like, as, as a favor, Bowie went on the show for him and performed. I might have been the first live performance of Heroes. Oh, wow. One of the first performances of Heroes, 1977. Bowie was the very last guest on the show. Bowen apparently was very jealous and was very intimidated and was super drunk before the show Excellent. and on the show. Good and way to, I good way to come forward I didn't have a chance show. to see if I could find any clips. But it sounds like Bowen like fell off the stage at one point. Oh, no. He's drunk on camera. And so they were supposed to play together, and it doesn't really happen because of this. Oh, no. And uh, so Bowen was not feeling really good about this, yeah. apparently. Um, it was a couple weeks after that that uh, Bowen dies in a car accident. Oh, no. Just complete freak thing. Yikes. Um, Bowie, I mean, this is all, like, within a couple months, Bowie also does the uh, his duet with Bing Crosby on Bing Crosby special. Right. And Bing Crosby dies right after that also. Oh, great. So Bowie's, like, feeling kind of cursed at the time. The angel of death is what he is. The angel of death. So this is where they're, they're you know, in not terribly exciting, I know, kind of anticlimactic conclusion to this rivalry, which Bowie clearly wins gigantically. Yeah. Um, now, notably, they were, they were friends off and on. They, there are supposed to be some like demos or stuff that they did together, some other... And Bowen was saying in 1977 that uh, he and Bowie were going to do an album together. Oh. That's not like Bowen, Bowen said a lot of things, so sure. they have been discussed or made out of, who knows. Um, but to Bowie's credit, he after Bowen died, Bowen's uh, partner, he was I think he was never... I don't know if he was never officially divorced from his wife or something, like, or he hadn't, he hadn't updated his will. It was something like that. It basically left his partner and his son um, with nothing. Oh. Like the poor woman. They, they had like nothing in his will. Oh. I think it was all still going back to his ex-wife. It was something like that, something weird. Um, so Bowie kind of secretly gave them a fair amount of money oh. and paid for oh. paid for his uh, Bullen son's uh, school. Oh, Bowie. Like private schooling. <laughs> so Bowie, like... you know, he ends up being a decent, a decent bloke there. And he goes to Bullen's funeral and he's... Um, like noticeably choked up and then still hounded by the media, of course, because, you know, you can't even go to a friend's funeral and not get hounded by the media. Of course. Finally, Jake, I have the zestiest nugget of this entire episode or wow. possibly the entire podcast as a whole. Are you ready wow. for this? I don't know if I'm ready for this. We are, I just want you to know we are at an hour and 40 minutes. <laughs> I know, it's our longest episode ever by a lot. By a long zesty, shot. Zesty nugget, All right, done. take us out. The night. Take us this out. This is a good way to end it, right here. I'm ready. Mark Bolin, at one point, and who knows if this is actually true or if you're just saying it at the time, but at one point, you know, knowing that his it's a stage name, Bolin is a stage name. Yep. At one point, he claimed that Bolin was consciously a combination of Bowie and Dylan. What? I know. Whoa, that is I zesty. Know. Did I, I told you, you I was, this was not just hyperbole, Jake. This was the zestiest nugget, certainly of this episode, possibly the entire run of the show. Only zesty because they, we cannot heretofore find any connection between Bowie and Dylan whatsoever no, at all. <laughs> but, 
you know, who knows if it's actually true or not, but at one point, Bolin did say that. He straight out said that Bowie and Dylan were a combination, that Bolin was a combination of Bowie and wow. Dylan. His stage name. And now, and now this sweet combination of Bowie and Dylan is in heaven, still enraged at David Bowie for one-upping him. For one-upping him in the end by being yeah. nice to his sort of widow. That's right. He's like, how dare you? Do it my job! <laughs> Alright, Jig, this has been a long Wowzers. episode. So long. I so took a sure. nap at, at number seven. I don't know if you noticed, but I was asleep. <laughs> I was just nope. I was I was scatting nap. the entire time. You were scatting. I was, okay, just really, great. I was really into it at that That's point. That's gonna be so. a real treat for the audience. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Three minutes of me scatting. I knew this hey, would happen. Our next episode is gonna be twenty fifteen. Yeah, that's not gonna be an hour and forty minutes, I don't think. No. Twenty fifteen the year was not an hour as long as this episode. No, exactly. This episode has been an entire year long. <laughs> 365 but hey, days if and you counting. made it this far, thanks for listening to this sordid, salacious, juicy <laughs> podcast. And of course, so the number one petty. really combined, the best rivalry of all is Jake versus Charlie. Well, clearly. With, Char- I mean, with Charlie continually winning, which yeah, is frustrating which is, the that's older not, brother in the situation. That's not true. Hey, Jake! No. I'm Charlie, and I like Bowie. Hey, Chaz. I'm Jake, and I like Dylan. I mean, I love him. And we'll, uh, we'll see you next time, everyone. Yeah, maybe. If we make it to 40 years, it'll be a miracle. Because <laughs> that Charlie just makes me so mad! Boop-ba-doop! 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 Boop-ba-doop!